Psalm 119, beginning in verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in thy way. Establish thy word unto thy servant, who is devoted to thy fear. Turn away my reproach, which I fear, for thy judgments are good. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. God's word teaches us that as believers, we can bring our requests before him. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 says, Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. Don't worry about anything. Not even one thing. Just trust God. Make your request and trust God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, we discussed this in Sunday school a little bit this morning, tells us that we can come boldly unto God's throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need. Now I like to point out that that verse says we can come boldly unto the throne of grace. It doesn't say arrogantly. I shared with the Sunday school class many years ago, many years ago when I was a teenager, that was a long time ago and I still remember it, there was this young lady whose favor I sought and we were wanting to go somewhere and it was raining and she's talking about praying that the rain would stop and she said to me, you have to give God a deadline of when to do something and I was taken aback by that. <laughs> Who am I to give God a deadline? That's arrogance. That's not coming boldly, that's coming arrogantly. So the scripture says we can come boldly. That word boldly means frankness of speech. It means openness of speech. We can come before God with any request, any need, any desire for his grace in our lives and just present that before him. And the scripture says, find grace to help in time of need. By the way, let me pause for a moment and point out the title of this message is Seven Requests That Every Believer should make of God. And we're going to see those requests in a moment. I think Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 where it tells us we can make our requests of God is the equivalent of what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what? All of these things, all of our needs, that's what he's talking about, shall be added unto you. So what's he saying? He says you have to have a priority in your praying. Now I know a lot of times our priority is this, our needs. Lord, I need this. Lord, do this. Lord, give me this. Lord, help me with this. But what does that verse say? What is the priority in our prayer? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How often do we pray and ask God just to establish and work his kingdom, work through us and use us, and we pray for the advancement of the kingdom of God? James chapter 5, verse 16 tells us this, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Those words effectual and fervent taken together literally mean working, active. May God forgive us for our weak, lazy, ineffective praying, folks. The Word of God says we're to pray effectually. We're to pray fervently. Some of the words that are used in relation to our praying and to our living for the Lord is the word that we would get our word zeal from, and it has the idea of boiling. Hey, how many times do we have boiling prayers? 
People laugh at me when I ask this question, but have you ever watched water boil? I like to watch water boil. Because it starts out, it's just sitting there. And then all of a sudden you see in the bottom of the pan these little bubbles. And then before you know it, man, it's just, it's active, it's working. And that ought to be our prayer lives according to what the Word of God says. And he said when we pray that way, it avails much or it's mighty, it's powerful, it prevails with God. The active prayer, the working prayer. I like to have people praying for me that are right with God and pray that kind of prayer, you know. <laughs> Anybody who wants to pray for me can pray for me, but I really like to have people that are right with God praying for me. I know their prayers are going to be answered, right? The 119th Psalm, obviously, is the longest of all Psalms. 176 verses. It's about the Word of God. You just read that 119th Psalm. In fact, we're going to come across it toward the end of this month in our reading schedule of reading through the Bible. And I did you a favor in setting up that schedule. I broke it down into sections so you can read part of the 119th Psalm this day and another part this day and another part this day. But 176 verses about the Word of God. The theme is the surpassing excellence of divine law. How wonderful is the Word of God? How great is the Word of God? By the way, the 119th Psalm is written in stanzas of eight verses. Each stanza begins with the next succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, and on down throughout the uh, Hebrew alphabet, each stanza begins with the next letter. Now, this psalm has been ascribed. We don't know who wrote it. Its author is not listed. It's been ascribed to David. He wrote a lot of the psalms. He didn't write all of them. He wrote most of them. Asaph wrote some, and some others wrote some psalms. It's been ascribed to King Hezekiah at some point, but it's also been ascribed to Jeremiah and to Ezra, and personally I'd like to think that Ezra might well have been the one that God used to pen this 119th Psalm because he is called in Ezra chapter 7 verse 6 a ready scribe. That word ready means skillful. Now what did a scribe do? You know what a scribe, a scribe copied the Word of God, and he would have, you know, they didn't have printing presses back then, and so he would just copy the Word of God. And he's called a skillful or a ready scribe, and he resolved to make the Word of God the guiding principle in his life. Listen to Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. I shared this with you just recently. This, this is good for every child of God. For Ezra had prepared his heart. By the way, it's a good three-point devotional or sermon or whatever, all right? Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So Ezra said, I want to know God's Word. I want to do God's Word. And then I want to teach others how to do God's Word. A beautiful three-point sermon for us right there in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Now, what I said a moment ago is in this section, we're going to see seven requests that every child of God ought to make of their Heavenly Father. And so we're going to start, verse, obviously, first of all, with verse 33 and just work through this section of this 119th Psalm. And you notice the first thing he says is, teach me. Just teach me. We need to be taught. That word teach means to cast or guide, direct, instruct in a course of action. What does he say? He says, teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. The way of thy statute. Guide me 
in the way of your statutes, Lord. Lead me in this course of action of following your statutes. Somebody suggested that this word statutes, one of the definitions, you know, it could mean law, ordinance, or whatever, but one of the definitions of this word statutes also means boundaries. Lord, teach me your boundaries, okay? Guide me in your boundaries. See, we all face boundaries every day, don't we? You get out here driving on the highway, you have a boundary. Now, in some places it's a curb, in other places it's a speed limit sign, whatever. And if you violate the boundary and you get caught, you may get in trouble for that. But everywhere we go, we have, bound we have boundaries on the highway. We have boundaries when we do our taxes, don't we? We certainly do. And so we just face boundaries, courses of action. And here's what the psalmist is saying. Lord, teach me what I cannot do. Lord, teach me what I can do. And Lord, teach me what I should do. Okay? What I can't do, what I can do, and what I should do. See, if we're going to be the kind of people that James talked about, and I've got to go fast with this, so y'all listen fast this morning. I got myself in trouble this morning in the Sunday school class. I said, I don't want to just stand up there for 30 minutes, and I heard some snickering, and I said, okay, 40, and more snickering. I said, well, 45, you know, so just bear with me, but listen quickly because we've got to go fast. If we're going to be those righteous people that James talked about, we've got to stay within God's boundaries. God doesn't save us and then say, well, you just live like you want to live. There are no boundaries. There are no rules. You just, see, we get accused of that, don't we? Romans chapter six, the apostle Paul said that some accuse us of having the idea, well, let's just accept God's grace and keep on sinning. So God can show more grace. And you know what his answer to that? His answer to that is what our answer ought to be. When he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, God forbid. Don't even think that way. Don't get that kind of thought process going in your head, child of God. We're not saved just so we can go out and sin more and God can show more grace. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 7 says, God has not called us to uncleanness, but to what? But to holiness. What is holiness? It is separation to God. It is being like God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy. And that word worthy has the idea of in equal balance too. Here's what you're called. Here's your calling, your salvation on this side. Here's your life on this side. And they ought to just balance out. Many times our lives and the, the sin in our lives outweighs our profession, doesn't it? But, James, uh, but Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 that you walk worthy or in equal balance of the vocation wherewith you're called. And then Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. I'm thankful we have liberty. You know, I don't have to walk a chalk line as a child of God. I don't have to worry about maybe stepping off a little bit and losing my salvation or something like that. Here's what God says, you live for me. And as I live for him, he says that I'm not to use my life as an occasion for the flesh, but as an occasion to serve others and to serve God. There are people that don't want boundaries. There are people that don't want, some of them are saved people that don't want to live within the limits of the word of God. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, The Spirit speaketh expressly that in latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons or doctrines of devils. And so they're just people who don't want to live according to the Word of God. But the psalmist says, Teach me, Lord. That's his request. 
His request comes with a result. He says, teach me, and what? I shall keep it. That's talking about his way, God's way. I shall keep it to the end. Lord, you just show me. Show me what I can do. Show me what I cannot do. Show me what I should do, and I will be obedient to the end. He wants to be consistent in his relationship with God. He said, Lord, I just want to follow you. You show me how to live, Lord, and I will never depart from it. That ought to be a request of every child of God. Number two, he says, give me. Teach me. Now he says, give me. Give me understanding and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Teach me as a request for knowledge. Give me as a request for wisdom or for understanding. Give me understanding. You know what wisdom is? It's the godly use of the knowledge that we have. That's what true wisdom, that's what godly wisdom is. So the request is for wisdom. The request is now, okay, Lord, you've taught me your way. Now, Lord, I want wisdom in following that way. There are a lot of saved folks that have knowledge. Not a lot that have understanding. That not have the wisdom to use the knowledge that we have. See, if we had understanding, we'd know what we should do, wouldn't we? And we would do it. So we have the knowledge. I mean, anybody can go to the Word of God and read and get the knowledge, but ask God for the wisdom also. Those without knowledge, without understanding, are always looking for loopholes. How can I get around this? How can I do what I want to do and not be chastened by God or whatever? And the result is, I shall keep thy law, I shall observe it with my whole heart. That word keep means to guard, just like you'd guard a prisoner. And the psalmist said, Lord, give me some understanding about your way and I will protect it, I will maintain it, I will guard it, I will obey it. That's also what it means. That's what observe means. You know, Jesus, in giving the great commission to his churches, said that we're to uh, make disciples. And in making disciples, what do we do? Well, we bring people to Christ. We encourage upon them scriptural baptism. And then after they're baptized and saved and baptized and members of the church, what are we supposed to do? Teach them to observe. That means to do. All things whatsoever Christ has commanded. That is this church's job. That is part of this preacher's job is to teach people to do what God has commanded that we should do. And so he says, just Lord, my request is that you'd give me understanding. And if you'll give me understanding, here's what I want to do. I want to do what you taught me to do. And here's the reason, the result. For therein do I delight. What does he delight in? He delights in the word of God. He delights in the way of God. He's pleased with it. He has experienced the joy of being obedient to God. Hey, have you ever experienced the joy of being obedient to God? We ought to every day. And the psalmist said, Lord, you just teach me. Lord, you just give me the wisdom and I will delight. I will experience that joy. But you know what? There's a problem, isn't there? You know what the problem is? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 41. I know he's talking to his disciples. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, they've gone to pray. But he says to his disciples, Watch ye and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Lord, I want to serve you. Teach me. Give me wisdom. And Lord, I got this problem. And it's called my flesh. And my flesh does not want 
to do those things that I want to do in my spirit. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16, This I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Hey, why do I have a problem? I want to serve God. Why do I have a problem serving God sometimes? Because you got this stuff right here. And that old fleshly nature. And it doesn't want to do what God wants to do. It wants to do what it wants to do. And the new nature that God has given us is saying, follow God, serve God, live for God, read your Bible, study your Bible, pray, you know, witness, all of these things we're supposed to do. And the flesh is saying, eh, I don't think so. I don't want to do that. I would just rather enjoy life. Read sometime. We're not going to take the time to read it this morning, but I love Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25. Because if you will read those verses, Romans 7, 15 through 25, the Apostle Paul starts out, this is not a direct quote, this is sort of a heresology of it, but the Apostle Paul starts out by saying, hey, I don't, I don't get what's going on here in my life. And then he explains it. He says, there's a part of me wants to do what God wants to do. And there's a part of me that wants to do what I want to do. And I find that when I'm wanting to do what God wants me to do, that other part of me says, no, 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 don't do that. And when my spirit is telling me don't do that, my flesh is saying, yeah, you want to do this. And he said, there's this constant battle going on. And he finally cried out, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he said, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. He said, I, I'll just let Jesus have rule and reign in my life and I'll let him be first in my life and I will faithfully serve God. And we face the same thing the psalmist faced and we face the same thing that Paul faced in our lives on a daily basis. The spirit says do this and the flesh says do this. And it's just a matter of choice who we're going to follow. The psalmist said, teach me. The psalmist said, give me. And then he says this, he says, make me. Look at it. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments. Therein do I delight. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments. Therein do I delight. By the way, we ought to delight going in the paths of his commandments. And we go back to this idea of understanding and wisdom. We shouldn't just declare or sing, oh, how I love Jesus, folks. We ought to live, oh, how I love Jesus. But he says, make me. Make me go in the path of thy commandments. The request is that the Lord, this word make, has the idea of stringing a bow. Now, I'm not talking about these modern bows. I'm talking about an old-fashioned type of bow where you had to bend the bow. And you had to stretch the string in order to string the bow. He says very literally, because it also means to walk or to tread. He's saying, Lord, I got to have you guide me down the road of your commandments. It's not me. It's not me that is going to live for you like I should. I've got to have you to guide me down the road of your commandments. This is a request for God's control in the life of the psalmist. Lord, you control my life. You guide my life. You lead my life. You make me go down that road that you want me to. And he said, I'll be pleased in it and I'll desire it. So I, I don't want to be made to do anything. We're all made to do things. You know, I was made, think about this. I was made growing up, I was made to brush my teeth. <laughs> I get amazed these people say, well, I was made to go to church when I was growing up. And that's why I don't go to church today. 
Well, I was made to take a bath when I was growing up. You want me to use that excuse? Hmm? Lord, make me. Make me to go down the paths of your commandments. Jesus said, again, that the, the spirit is willing, but, but the flesh is the problem. And so we have to have God to guide us and to lead us. He says, teach me. He says, give me. He says, make me or guide me. Now look at what he says in the next verse. He says, incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. You look at that word incline, to stretch or to spread out, to pitch, to cause, to yield, to bend toward. I've forgotten what it's called, but there's a certain art where you can take young trees and you can bend them in a certain direction and you can tie them and so that they grow. And people have used that to make all kinds of shapes and forms out of these trees. What he's saying is, it's, bend me. And the idea is, is like this. Bend me toward your commandments. See, we're bending this way in the flesh. And the psalmist said, Lord, bend me this way. Bend me toward your commandments. Have you ever heard the expression, some of us who are older have heard this, as the twig is bent, so grows the tree. What that means is early influences have a permanent effect. There's a reason that parents of young children need to have those young children in church and under the Word of God. There's a reason that parents of young children need to be setting examples of godliness and faithfulness to their children. You know what they're doing? They're just bending the twig. And so they need to be godly parents before their children. It's going to have an effect in their lives later on. That's why it's so important to disciple new believers. The Lord said, make disciples. You know what our attitude many times is? Get them saved, get them in, get them baptized, get them on church roll. Now, you figure out how you're going to grow. You just grow as a child of God. That is our responsibility as a church, to teach, to help people to grow. And so again, as a church, we ought to be an example of godliness. As parents, we ought to be examples of godliness because all the time we're just bending the twig. We're bending the tree one way or another. Let me give you some thoughts from God's Word about being bent or, or pitching in a certain direction. Genesis chapter 13, verse 12 says this, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. You know what Lot's doing? He's bending He's bending himself and his wife and his daughters toward Sodom. And Lot ended up living in that city of Sodom. One preacher said it this way. He just had his tent flap door open toward Sodom. Lot ended up as being on what I refer to as the city council. He sat in the gate of the city of Sodom. And remember, he lost his family. I know two daughters went up in the mountain with him and had incest with their daddy there. But two daughters and their husbands died and his wife looked back and died. And so Lot had just bent everything toward Sodom. Hosea chapter 11 verse 7. And my people are bent to backsliding from me. Boy, that verse ought to be over in the New Testament. That ought to be something to one of the seven churches of Asia or to some of the Lord's churches today. My people are bent toward backsliding against me. 
What does it mean to be bent? It means to have a tendency. It means to have a habit. You know, in our English language, we say, well, she has a bent toward art or something else. And we just mean they have a tendency toward it. They're good at it, and they, they tend to lean that way. And so God said, my people are just, that's what they're going to do. They're going to backslide. That's a word, by the way, we don't hear from pulpits today. Preachers are afraid to preach against backsliding, I think. Maybe because some of them are backslidden. I don't know. But backsliding is a problem among God's people. Listen, if you've been saved for any length of time, and you've studied the Word of God, and you've been in one of the Lord's churches, I dare say you know how you ought to live, and how you ought to be faithful, and how you ought to serve God. So what's the problem? We backslide. God's people today have a bent toward backsliding. Romans 6.13, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness for God. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to yield. We're supposed to bend. We're supposed to pitch ourselves toward God and say, God, here's my life. Take it. Use it. Glorify yourself in it. Instead of saying, I can live like I want to live. No. The Word of God says that we are supposed to live like we are alive under God. And he says, here he says, incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. Bend me toward your word, Lord, rather than toward things. My natural bent is to bend toward things. Bend me toward your word. See what the psalmist wants. He wants to avoid covetousness in his life. What is covetousness? It's not being satisfied with what God has given us. He knows the dangers of covetousness. 1 Timothy 6.10, we need to always get this right. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, it does not say money is the root of all evil. It says the love, you know, I, for years I have studied that phrase, love of money. What is? What are you talking about? Because, see, I had some questions. How can the love of money lead to adultery? But then as I studied that word, love of money actually talks about covetousness. Not just love of coins and cash, covetousness. Not being satisfied with what God has given me, not being satisfied with what God where God has put me, not being satisfied with how God wants to use me, that's covetousness. And he says, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You know what covetousness leads to? Sorrow. That's what the Word of God says. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. We ought to be very familiar with this verse. Paul, writing that second letter to Timothy, says this. Now, he's talking about a man who had faithfully served God with him for a time. And he says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed. Here was Demas, a faithful servant of God. Now all of a sudden he's not serving God. Why is he not serving God? He fell in love with the world. He became covetous. He wanted things more than he wanted godliness in his life. And so the psalmist said, Lord, just incline me to you instead of the things of this world and things in this world, okay? So he says, teach me. He says, give me. He says, make me. He says, incline me. And now look at verse 37, turn me. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity and quicken thou me in thy way. Here's a prayer for protection. 
He's asking God to do this, not depending on himself. The word turn away had the idea of covering or of covering the eyes. I think there's some things in this world, we either need to close our eyes, turn our heads, or put our hands over our eyes, some of the things that are in this world today that you see out, even out in public. And that's the whole idea of God turning me. It's, it's the picture of a father who he sees something he doesn't want his son to see, and he puts his hands over his son's eyes right quick. Don't look at that. Now, what do we do most of the time when somebody says, don't look? <laughs> yeah, all right. But we get the warning, don't look, we don't need to look, right? Don't look now. And so the psalmist says, Lord, just turn my head away from, there are just things that need to be, we need to be turned away from. There's a reason when Israel went into the promised land that God told them to wipe out all the idols and all the idol worshipers. See, God knew their bent, right? God knew their tendency. And he knows that if they get over there in the land with all these idol worshipers and idols, and they didn't get rid of them all, by the way, if they get over there with the idol worshipers and the idols, guess what? They're going to start worshiping the idols. And they did. And the reason the Assyrians captured the northern ten tribes and the reason the Babylonians got the southern two tribes is because of their idol worship. They turned toward things they didn't need to turn toward. Idol worship, and, and we may not worship little statues, but folks, anything that comes between us and God and our service of God, our faithfulness to God is an idol. And idol worship is a tendency that appeals to the flesh. There's a reason God's told us to put away certain things in our lives. Listen to Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 5 and then verses 8 and 9. Verse 5 says, mortify therefore, that means put to death, by the way. Okay, count it dead. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There he says it again, covetousness is idolatry. But you put those away. Count them as, that's dead in your life as a child of God. And then in verse 8 he says, but now you also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, uh-oh, we may be in trouble, right? <laughs> anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Be careful about the jokes you tell, words you use. And then he says, lie not one to another. God says there's some things you just need to be turned from. You need your hand over your eyes. You need to count these things as dead in your life. Parents care, or at least they need to care, what their children see. The entertainment industry in America today wears the attire of a harlot, folks. And it is being paraded in front of our teenagers as acceptable and as imitatable. I'm going to say this. I'm not picking on anybody. Well, why do you think, and I notice it's mostly teenage girls. I hadn't noticed this much with the boys. Like to wear blue jeans that have holes all in them like they got them off the scrap pile because somebody from Hollywood or in the entertainment industry or in the music industry looked that way and they said, that's neat, that's cool. You ought to dress this way and so they're going to dress this way. You may not agree with me, but that's my opinion. They say, it's do it. You want to look cool. You want to look like you're not an old fogey like your dad, right? Right? <laughs> Can't get any agreement out of her. You don't want to look like an old fogey like your dad. Dress this way. But Why? 
because somebody said that's the way you ought to do it. And so with this bent toward being acceptable, with this bent toward being cool, okay, I'll do it. But turn me. Turn me away from things that are going to take me away from you. And varying degrees of pornography are being piped into our homes by way of television, the internet, satellite TV, or whatever your own, streaming, I don't care, and movies being piped into our own homes. You don't have to go out of your house to watch pornography now. It's there. And we wonder what's wrong in America. God cares what his children see, and the psalmist is saying, Lord, there's some things I don't need to see. And I know I'm going to have a tendency to look at them. So, Lord, you need to put your hand over my eyes, and you need to turn my eyes, because there's some things I need to be turned. You know, we had a little song we used to teach children in children's chapel. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you say. We adults need to learn that song, too. The psalmist prays, teach me, give me, make me, incline me, Lord, turn me. And now he says, look at verse 38, establish me, establish thy word unto thy servant who is devoted to thy fear. That word establish means to rise, to raise. Establish means to set on a firm basis. Make it seem firm and true. He said, Lord, confirm your word in me. Raise your word up in me. Make your word strong in me, if you will. Confirm my faith, Lord. I think it's akin to something Peter said when he told us to work out our own salvation. He didn't say work for your salvation. He said, you got it on the inside. Let it work to the outside. I'm not asking any show of hands, but have you ever doubted your salvation did I really accept Christ? Did I really trust Christ? And you might even look at some point in your life of something you did, something you said, some way you act, and said, would a child of God really do that? And Peter says, you live in such a way where you don't even have to fear that. You don't have to do. Just live for God. Live for Christ and let what is inside of you come to the outside. This seems to be a prayer against the influence of doubt and skepticism. I'm telling you, Satan and this world will try to put doubt and skepticism into our minds and into our hearts as children of God. He's going to try to cause me and he's going to try to cause you to question the word of God. And there are a lot of saved folks, a lot of churches today that are being moved away from the truth because of fads, by trends, by movements. Oh, this is the popular thing today. We need to do it. Well, what does the word of God say about it, you know? I don't care what the world out there says about it. I don't care how neat they think it is. I don't care how, quote, unquote, godly they think it is. If the word of God condemns it, then we need to stay away from it. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers and literally teaching pastors. I made up my mind years ago. That's what I want to be, teaching pastor. I do like to point out that these are gifts the Lord has given to his churches. So your pastor is a gift from the Lord. Now there are gag gifts. And the Lord will give a church what it needs and the Lord will give a church also what it deserves and you figure out what you got, okay? But he gave teaching pastors for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith. 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we, get this, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine and there's a bunch of it out there by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. What he's saying is God gave us churches that teach and preach the truth and pastors that teach and preach the truth so we can learn the truth and be solidified it, be raised up, be established in it so that when some new doctrine comes along we say, uh-uh, <laughs> that's not from God. By the way, there are new, no new doctrines. And I know I said this in Sunday school and I was advised be careful what circles I say this in, but I'm going to say it. Folks, it's not Baptist doctrine, it's Bible doctrine which Baptists have stood for for the ages, okay? It's a prayer like Paul had in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. He said, just get your feet in the faith, in the truth, in the word of God, and don't let them be moved. I have been told for many, many years that the difference between why oak trees fall over in tornadoes and why pine trees usually get the tops broken out of them in tornadoes because there's as much of a pine tree under the ground as there is above the ground. Its roots go deep. Oak tree, and we have two in our yard, and you can see their, their roots are just spreading out on top of the ground. We're to be like pine trees. We're to have our roots deep in the Word of God. The psalmist wanted to be established in the Word so he could stand strong. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He says, Establish thy word unto thy servant, who is devoted to thy fear. Now, this is not terror. This is a reverential fear, a reverential awe of God. And we know that in the Psalms and also in the book of Proverbs, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But listen to what Job said in Job 28, verse 28, And unto man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. You want to be wise? Fear God. Have a reverential awe for God. We live in a day when there's not a lot of reverence toward God. A lot of folks want to treat him like the buddy up in the sky. We'll call him by his first name and not reverence God. Listen, folks, God is still God. God is still omniscient. God is still omnipresent. God is still almighty. We need to reverence God. Amen. And we need to worship him as Jesus prescribed in John 4, 24, in spirit and in truth. That's what we try to do here. The psalmist said, teach me. He said, give me. He said, make me. He said, incline me. He said, turn me. He said, establish me. And finally, he says, Lord, quicken me. Look at verse 40. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. You look at verse 37. He says, quicken thou me in thy way. That word quicken means to make alive. It means to repair. It means to nourish. He's saying, Lord, revive your righteousness in me. Restore me to your way. Remember, he said, there's, you know, there's a tendency to turn, but Lord, restore me. To bring me back to your way. He said, I've longed after your precepts. He not only 
loved the teaching of God's Word. He not only delighted in the teaching of God's Word, but he had an earnest desire to grow in the Word of God. Now, when we talk about teaching the Word of God and learning the Word of God, we're not just talking about learning a bunch of verses. Uh, you can quote Bible verses all day long and still go out and sin against God. We're talking about getting the Word of God. What does he say elsewhere in this 119th Psalm? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. See, you can put it in your head and somebody can get it out of your head. They can tell you something else make you forget it. But if it's in your heart, it's rooted and it's grounded and it is established. And he's saying, quicken me, put your life into me, help me to know more about your statutes, help me to do them better. Lord, help me to be a better child. He wanted to have a spiritual life that honored God and honored the Word of God. And folks, that needs to be the prayer of God's people in the Lord's churches today. We're living in a day when there's more people, more sinners being born into this world than people are being saved on a weekly basis. We pointed this out in the bulletin article last week. If there was ever a time that God's people need to know the Word of God and get established in the Word of God and be faithful to God, folks, that is today. We need to be quickened in righteousness. Second Timothy Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Remember, it says there's coming a time. He said the time will come when they'll not endure sound doctrine, but they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned to fables. And we got a lot of people listening to fables today. The preacher who'll get up and tell a few jokes and have a few cute little stories and sit down is the most popular. And the preaching the Word of God is not real popular today. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Remember, Paul told Timothy, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. <laughs> We're seeing it, folks. We're seeing it. But he told Timothy in verse 14, but as for you, you know, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. See, that's going to get bad. Here's what you hold on to. The Word of God. The Word of God, your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, as bad as it gets, you can trust God's Word. Our lives are nothing without God. And our everyday prayer should be, Lord, teach me. Lord, give me. Lord, make me. Lord, incline me. Lord, turn me. Lord, establish me. And Lord, quicken me. Seven requests. And they're made to impact the life of the child of God. And we ought to say like the psalmist, Lord, I want your word to impact me. I want your word and your will to control me, not just on Sunday, but throughout the rest of the week. I told the Sunday school class this morning, I said, I get up on Monday, you know what my thoughts are? Lord, what do we need to hear next Sunday? This is not something you throw together in a few minutes. It's not something you just jump up and say off the top of your head. It's, Lord, prepare me. Give me the words. Give me the thoughts. And, and so we, we have to be like that throughout the week.
And when our prayers are more like this prayer, we'll be more like David. You remember what God said about David in Acts 13, 22? I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart. Now you think about David. You think about his life. He committed adultery. He committed premeditated murder. And yet God says, he's a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. See, this psalm could apply to David just as easily as Ezra. Because he probably came to the point where he said, Lord, I need you to teach me. I need you to make me. I need you to incline me. I need you to do all of these other things to turn me, to establish me, to quicken me. Well, we can be like David if we'll do that. Because know this, God has a will and God has a desire for each of our lives individually. But we can't fulfill God's will in our lives as long as they're not willing to be sensitive to the leadership of God's Word, the precepts of His Word, and the teaching and leadership of His Spirit in our lives. We need to be willing to pray this prayer, to follow God, to do what He says, and just give Him complete and ultimate control. And in the book of Hebrews, the third chapter, it says, Talking about today is the day that we need to, to commit to God. And how long, he said, will you harden your hearts? Today is the day. Now is the time to say, Lord, I, I'm putting down a marker right here. This is where I begin a new life for you. We're not talking about salvation or, or you know, getting your salvation back. Not talking about what we're talking about. We're talking about a new time of commitment saying, Lord, from this point forward, it's about you. I'm living for you. I'm serving you. And Lord, I want you to teach me. And I want you to give me. And I want you to make me. And I want you to do all of those things the psalmist talked about. Because I want to live for you in this present and evil world.